Okay, last hour we got to about the middle of chapter 3, so we'll complete it. And we'll go a little bit faster, but touch on the essentials in it. And you're probably already picking up, as Loretta commented during the break, in terms of who we are, this is this is what tells us who we are and who we are today. We have this the nature that Adam and Eve became. Sin nature started in Genesis three, and we have it today. And now we battle, and throughout history we've seen that battle continuing in all men in all ages. Now, the image of God is affected by the fall in a very drastic way. Remember, we saw the image of God when we looked at Genesis 1. And I said the image of God, at least the major elements of what we, what it means to be created in the image of God involves spirituality. We have spirit. It includes immortality. It includes intellect. It includes volition. It includes creativity, it includes the ability to communicate. What happened to the spirituality after the fall? Separation, or what's the other word that we use? What's the other word we use? Death. Okay, death. But in the biblical worldview, there's also hope, and as a result of what God did in history in Jesus Christ, yes, there the... The individuals are dead, or unbelievers are dead spiritually, but there is the opportunity for life renewed in Jesus Christ. That can be restored. And we're in the process of that restoration, spiritually. In terms of immortality, again, what happened to man? Death. Death again. In this case, it's the second death that Revelation talks about. Unbelieving man is sentenced to a death sentence, and it's called second death. And that's to remain separated from God into eternity. But the hope in Christ is that we can regain eternal life in terms of relationship to God. And in terms of the intellect, what did we say happened to the intellect? Darkened. In Christ, the image can be restored through that same Ephesians 4 passage where we talked about the darkening. In verse 23, what does it say there? Does anybody remember? The intellect being darkened and it can be renewed. Renewed in the thinking, in your thinking. In Christ only. So God has a solution to the problem of evil. And in terms of volition, what happened to to man's volition as a result of sin, made us into rebellious creatures. In Christ, obedience can be restored. And in terms of creativity, any creativity that we express is distorted as the unbeliever, and the unbeliever can express great creativity in the arts, for example, music, but usually that is self-centered. In other words, it's for man's glory. But in Christ, we can be creative and all our creativity can be for God's glory. Restored in Christ. So the image of God is damaged as a result of the fall, but it can be restored only in Jesus Christ. And in communication, deception began with the serpent and even the woman made some deceptive statements that were not true, but now we're exhorted in Christ to speak the truth in love. So it's only in Christ that the image of God can be restored, and in the future, that image will be totally restored, even to a greater extent than the image of God that Adam and Eve were created in. That's what glorification is all about. So there's only hope for the believer, in terms of evil and suffering. We talked about language. I gave you a foundation for language. We said that God communicates. He's not silent. Genesis 3, or 1-3, rather. The means of creation was by God's word. So God used language to create. So communication and language is not trivial. 
So language originates in God, not man, like the evolution says. God names things. He makes distinctions, not linguists. Number five, we said that it's built into man. You should have all this already. So it's built into man. Man doesn't evolve and begins to speak and communicate. And now with number six, what did we say before? It's perverted. Language is perverted by sin. First, the sin of the person behind the serpent, and then by man and woman. And you see the perversion even in the communication with God. You see man blaming woman. So it's not neutral. Language is not neutral. And eventually we'll see that God is going to judge language at Babel such that we will have many languages so they don't come out of culture. Cultures come out of the confusing of the languages. That's a biblical worldview. Let's look at the confrontation. We already read some of those verses, so some of those we'll summarize. We could say in verse 8, as God confronts, he's the one that takes the initiative, always. This is going to get us, this is the beginning of the restoration process. God has to confront us and get us into a place where we can be converted, if you will. God always takes the initiative. Throughout Scripture, it's God that takes the initiative. We'll talk about the doctrine of election later on, but you already have hints of it here in verse 8. God approaching the man and the woman. What does man do? Man always flees. That's also in verse 8. Man always hides from God. Paul tells us in Romans 3, there's none that seeks after God. God always takes the initiative. Man always flees, never seeks. Thirdly, it's God that does the seeking. That's verse 9. We read that one. He called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God seeking man. John 6 tells us that unless man is drawn by the Father, he will not come. So it takes the drawing of God, or God seeking out individuals. Fourthly, man is naked in verse 10. We saw that. I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. That is a picture of his guilt. Stand before a holy God, we stand naked, exposed. Our guilt is exposed. And God asks questions, in beginning in verse 11, Who told you you were naked? This is to bring conviction. This is to bring conviction. And number six, what does man do? It's going to take more than the initial conviction. Man begins to blame the woman, first of all. Then the woman's going to blame the serpent. And that just exposes more depravity. It shows the depravity of man. Not only guilt, but depravity. His nature has changed. He doesn't immediately respond. And as you share the gospel, don't be surprised if it takes several times to share the gospel before people respond at all. Because of depravity. That's the confrontation. So, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14 through 19, God condemns not only the man, but the woman, and also the serpent, and also the agent behind the serpent. So let's take a look at that condemnation and the punishment associated with it. And the first thing we want to note, let's begin... Let's begin with verse 13. I don't remember. Where do we leave off the reading? Did you I think you read last, right? Colin, you want to read? Yeah. 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then read verse. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, verse 14, very, very significant, and even more significant is verse 15 that we'll get to in a moment. But I wanted you to read 13 so you can see the man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent, kind of passing blame, so both have same nature. And then verse 14 begins the condemnation, the Lord God, notice Lord God, remember what did we say about the Lord God, both... 
Yahweh and Elohim. So, Lord is the God, or the aspect of God that interacts with his creation, particularly man. He's the same creator God that is separate and distinct and holy. That's Elohim, Lord God. So, God in his totality here. Said to the serpent, so... He addresses the man and then the woman, and now he's going to address the serpent and go in reverse order here. And basically judging the serpent because of what he has done, and the serpent will be cursed. Something happens to the serpent. And cursed, uh, I want you to notice a little phrase, more than all the cattle. What does that imply? They're also cursed. Also cursed. So the curse extends to the creation. Not just the serpent. The serpent more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. And specifically on your belly you shall go. The text doesn't tell us what changes took place, but it appears that something different, something's different about serpents now. And something's different, we'll look at this later, biologically, in terms of animals. And we're going to see something different about the whole creation itself. But I wanted to point those things out. And dust you shall eat, speaking in terms of eating things probably close to the ground, all the days of your life. And then verse 15, very, very important. Mark, read it. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise Okay, we have one of the first and primary prophecies. This is not absolutely the first, but a significant prophecy that's going to go way into the future. Far-reaching prophecy in verse 15. Can anyone tell me where the first actual prophetic words are stated? We've been looking at it today. First prophecy of all Scripture... How about 2.17? In the day that you eat, future, you should surely die. Here is the first major significant prophecy that has far-reaching implications and effects. And theologians call this, I'll show it on the screen in a moment, the protevangelium, that's a Latin word that basically means... First announcement of the gospel. This is the first announcement that God is going to deal. Now, it's not real clear, and it's somewhat vague in the passage, but this is considered the first announcement of God dealing with this issue of evil. And in history, God is going to deal with evil. This is the first prophetic word on that. So let's look at it carefully. I will put enmity, in other words, there'll be this hatred, this war, this battle, this enmity, if you will, between you and the woman. There's going to be this struggle between the woman and the serpent. And notice also between your seed and her seed, we have the first indication that she's going to have babies. She's going to have children, her seed, her descendants. And there's going to be descendants, if you will, or followers of the serpent, or at least the agent behind the serpent. So there's going to be this ongoing battle between children of the woman, which would include both male and female, and descendants, if you will, of the serpent. This is going to be an ongoing thing. This is going to be forever, basically, in world history till God ultimately ends it. It's a prophecy of world history. There's always been the struggle between the descendants of Eve, or mankind, and the satanic world. So we have that right off the bat. And then notice the last part. And he, who is the he? Oh, Jesus. The second to the last line. He shall bruise you. Notice the he. Now, it doesn't clarify it here, but the he is a particular seed, an individual seed of the woman. And by the way, this is the only place 
where it speaks of the seed of the woman. Already it's alluding to something very unusual, very different. When the Bible speaks of the seed, it's always the seed of the man. Men produce sperm. It's not the woman. The seed of the woman is very, very peculiar here, very unusual. Now, in this context, and I think it refers to her ultimate descendants, but she's going to have a particular seed or a particular descendant, and a lot of scholars see this as an allusion to what? The virgin birth, because Jesus is not the son of Joseph. He's the son of Joseph only legally, but not materially or not physically. It comes from the woman, the seed of the woman, if you will. Virgin birth. Because it always it always refers to the seed of the man as sperm, basically. Descendants of man. Well what I'm saying this this is the this is the only place where it refers to the woman. That's the point I make. Very unusual. So there's gonna be a particular seed of the woman and he will bruise you on the head. That'll be a fatal blow to the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. That's not fatal. And this is the what they call the Protevangelium because it, it alludes to the cross where Satan inflicted a wound on Christ, but it was not ultimately fatal because of resurrection. But on the cross, sin and Satan were judged. That's why on that timeline I put evil is judged. And it's fatal. In other words, there's no reversing it. It's settled. It's done. What Jesus accomplished. It's just a matter of time of it being worked out historically where the end will come. Where the sentence will be issued for ultimate and eternal condemnation. Make sense? So that's what theologians refer to here. Is the bruising on the heel is the crucifixion. And at the crucifixion, his head is crushed the head of the serpent or the agent. So the serpent is cursed. There's this enmity that uh, will continue throughout history till God ends it. And we have what we've described as the Protevangelium, where Satan, enmity with the woman, enmity between the seeds or descendants, you might look at, descendants of the woman, and the ultimate judgment of Satan is in view in 315. And in terms of the woman, she's going to have a particular seed, he, which foreshadows Messiah. That's why it's called the Protevangelium. And besides Messiah, allusion to the cross. See that? Now, it's not crystal clear here. You have to understand kind of the progress of Revelation and how God's going to work ultimately to be able to see all that in this passage. But it's all at least allowed for in this passage. First prophecy. This prophecy kind of encompasses the rest of world history. Messiah dealt a fatal blow to Satan, but the ultimate end of Satan is not till even in the future from our time. There's still an enmity going on. Is that specifically? Yes. No, Genesis 3.15 is called the first announcement of the gospel or protevangelium. What's the difference between sometimes it's called protevangelium? Same thing. Just, yeah, different pronunciation, same word. So, the woman, it alludes to childbirth. In the next passage, let's look at who wants to read whose turn. Randy, 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and sorrow and shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over Okay, so now we have a condemnation relating to the woman, and it says, I will greatly multiply your pain, some versions, and childbirth. Any version, I think Brandy's version puts it that way. And in the Hebrew, there's a vav there. A vav is like an and in this context. It's probably, what is it called? There's a figure of speech. Is it Hindaides? I'm trying to remember. Hindaides. Yeah. 
where we have two things, this and that, but it's really referring to one, and it kind of gives you an expansion of the one. So the pain, it's not just pain and childbearing, but it's pain in childbearing or as a result of childbearing. So you women can blame it on Eve when you have to bear children, and it's painful. And I understand it's very painful. So this is part of the curse, is the pain in childbirth. And in here, here we have an, an addition. Remember we said there's a distinction in roles, which is before the fall, and now it's re-emphasized in terms of a submission here. But within the woman, there will be this desire, it appears, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. The sense there seems to be your desire will be to control him. Your desire will be to lead him. Your desire will be to manipulate him. Your desire will be to rule over him. That's why it's added, and he shall rule over you. So the emphasis on submission in the passage. And in chapter 4, we have the, the only other place in the Old Testament you have the same phrase is in chapter 4 when it refers to uh, sin wanting to dominate Cain. So I'll let you look that one up. And then we have to the man. Let's read on. Verse 17. Loretta, you got it? Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. The implication there is what? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife? The implication is? Right. You should not have listened to her instead of me. Good. Okay, that's the implication there. Go ahead. And have eaten from the tree on which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat. Okay, so he reiterates the command. What's going to happen now? Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. Okay, so not only is the serpent, and not only is the cattle, and all the other animals cursed, but what is cursed now? The land or the ground, the earth. And what is man to do? He's, put, he's to subdue it, rule over it. And it's, it's as if God is saying in, in inflicting this punishment, as you rebelled against me in doing what I told you not to do, so now that creation that you are to subdue is going to rebel against you and it's going to be difficult to fulfill what I've called you to do. The ground now is in rebellion. It is cursed. In toil you shall eat of it. In other words, the produce that you bring from it, it's going to be difficult to produce. You're going to have struggle. The labor before the fall was not laborious. The labor before the fall was enjoyable. It was creative. It was satisfying. Now it becomes a difficult, sweat-bearing difficult situation. And that's expanded in the next next verse. Who's you got it, Connie? It will produce thorns and this is doing the Okay. Now not only are animals changed, but what else? Plants, thorns and thistles. All the negative aspects of the plant life. So you plant good seed, now you got these thistles, it shall grow and you shall eat the plants of the field. And verse 19, Linda, do you want to read it? Verse 19 is, By the sweat of your brow you shall return to the ground, for, uh, for out of it you were taken, for dust. Did I read on that? Yep, you read it before. And to dust return. Okay, notice, by the sweat of your brow or face. So it's going to be difficult now. So the land is cursed. Intense labor in order to produce. So work is hard. Work is difficult to make a living, to survive in a really a hostile world. So that's the punishment. But God does not leave without a provision. He's going to provide a Messiah. That's in relationship to this conflict with the serpent. We saw that. Pope Evangelium. In terms of the woman, she's going to bear children, so she's going to bear life. 
life is going to come from the woman. God's going to provide life, which implies God is going to forgive sin. There's going to be consequences, but there'll be forgiveness available, and life is going to come about. So God's going to produce life through the woman. There's going to be redemption, redemption as well. That's in verse 15 as a result of what God does. And even a provision of expulsion that we'll see at the end of Genesis 3. That is a provision. And the reason this is a positive thing and a provision is because there's two trees. One, the tree of good and evil. And what other tree? The tree of life. And the implication seems to be that if they eat of the tree of life, what will happen? They will live forever in a fallen body, as fallen creatures. So, they're excluded from eating of the tree, in other words, cast out of the garden, so that they will die physically, and those that trust in the Messiah can receive eternal life. So that's why it's a provision, the expulsion from the the garden. And there will also be service, which is implied in the passage dealing with man. He's going to labor and he can offer up continued service to God. In other words, the creation mandate is not ended, it's damaged. It's damaged, but not ended. And we'll see more of that later. So that's the condemnation. Let's take a look at some of the physical effects. We saw the effects on man, and we summed it up under death. In other words, man died the day that he ate of the the tree that he's, that God told him not to eat. And whose turn is to read? Did we already get through it all? Holland, read Romans 8. Uh, let me introduce it here in a moment. We'll get to Romans 8 in a moment. First of all, we've seen, this is kind of a summary, some of the physical effects, and these aren't always stressed, but they're right in the text, just as all of the other things that we've been looking at. I would say, and I I phrase it this way to kind of just emphasize nature and what science studies, basically. I would say all of zoology is affected. And remember we said that the serpent is cursed, and something happened to the serpent that is different after the fall than what was before. But it also says cursed more than all of the cattle, etc. So all of the animal kingdom is affected. All the zoology is affected. It's changed as a result of the fall. Secondly, anthropology is affected. Woman's pain, at least. Biologically, something happened to the woman. Now she experiences pain. The implication is before the fall, there was no pain. She would have had children without any pain. So anthropology. And the implication is just as the woman's body is different, we would expect... Even though the text doesn't point out anything specific, we would expect that man is affected as well. The effects of the fall on the human body in general, male and female. Thirdly, geophysics is affected. Geophysics deals with what? The earth. And the ground is cursed. That's essentially the second law of thermodynamics. And we'll see the second law again later on as well. So geophysics is affected. Botany, remember, thorns and thistles probably did not exist before the fall. Plants without thorns and thistles. So zoology, anthropology, geophysics, botany, physics, toil, sweat, eventual death, second law of thermodynamics. Things tending to decay, things tending to unwind. A movement from organization to disorganization. Machines less effective. Labor more strenuous, takes more labor to get a product out than before the fall. Even environmentalism, everything is now inefficient. Now, environmentalists cry when you throw Coke cans out a window. The real impact of the fall is that the whole universe is now polluted, and the real pollution is sin. And the effects of sin, the curse, that's real damage to the environment. All of the environment is damaged. And everywhere that scientists have observed and tested out the second law of thermodynamics, 
we see it in operation throughout the universe. Astronomers, uh, astrophysicists see the second law effective in astrophysics everywhere. And certainly on everywhere. Yeah, that's geophysics. So now read Romans 8 because it tells us what happened at the fall. Verse 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Notice that word, the creation, or phrase that the creation subjected to futility. That's Genesis 3. That's what God did, is at this point, he subjected the creation to this curse. Keep reading. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Okay, the creation didn't have a choice. It wasn't anything that the creation decided. It was God who decided it. Keep reading. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, there's the future. There's the hope. The curse is going to be reversed. The hope is evil is going to be confined. There's going to be an end to evil. There's going to be restoration. It's only in Christ that there's a, a reversal and there's a hope for restoration. Did you get to 22? Yeah. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the peace of childbirth. Okay, so all of the creation is affected. Till when? <clears throat> till the end of time? Yes, till the, <laughs> till the great white throne judgment. Now, there's going to be changes. There's going to be effects. The major effects were affected on the cross, where regeneration is part of the new covenant that God promises. We'll see some of these in the old, some of these things predicted in the Old Testament. But what I'm emphasizing here, the whole world, the whole universe was affected. Not just mankind, not just humans, not just spiritual things, but physical things. And God is going to restore spiritual things, but he's also going to restore physical things. That's the end of the book of Revelation and prophecies in the Old Testament. We also have effects on the institutions that God instituted. For example, the institution of marriage After the fall, and that's alluded to in Genesis 3, the roles are distorted, and we always throughout history have this battle of the sexes, you might say. The struggle between men and women. And today especially, where roles are totally distorted. We also have this desire that we spoke of to control husbands. And the flesh does that. The spirit, when a woman is led by the spirit, she has a submissive spirit. Making a living is going to be difficult. Feeding that family, feeding those members, husbands and wives, making a living under the curse is difficult now. We also said family. In fact, you could put making a living under the curse also under family. But specifically, the first murder comes from within the first family. Cain slays Abel. This is an effect of the fall. And what that story tells us is that sin is passed on to the next generation and to generations ever after. We also see that there will be a continual attack on the seed of the woman, and we saw that in the first murder. And you will also see throughout history an attack on the family. Now, in terms of these radical changes, I've got it charted on our timeline that I've been using here. So we have the creation, and after the creation, everything is very good. And I have to bend it to put the goodness here, but it's just a short period of time. And then we have the fall, fall of man. And now God introduces the curse, and the curse runs throughout to the end of world history. Now, different things will happen in time, and I'll illustrate them in a moment. Something significant happens at the flood. The world is radically changed at the flood as well. We'll see that in our next event, world history. And I'll develop this further, but real quickly, don't even try to copy this. We'll come back to this. We have a Noahic covenant. It seems that we have some stability in terms of creation and nature that will continue until the second coming where some changes are introduced into the physical realm. 
But the curse continues. And then we will also see that Christ is the first fruits of what? Of resurrection. A radical change in physical nature. Resurrection. That's our hope. He's the first fruits that tells us that you and I will experience resurrection. We will be restored to even better than Adam and Eve before the fall. Jesus is the first fruits of that. And then we see a second coming, and if you study the passages dealing with a thousand years in here, a millennium, the second coming introduces changes in the physical realm. A lamb will lay down with a lion. Wouldn't do that today, right? Unless you want to feed your lion. So the curse, there's there's going to be a refreshing of nature. The curse is partially lifted, but not entirely. And it's not till the very end that the curse is removed. That's that uh, Revelation 22.3 passage. Radical changes. What are miracles? Miracles are just examples that God can have drastic effects on the natural realm anytime he wants to. And there's different periods where there's been miracles. This mosaic period, some of the prophets here during the life of Christ, uh, the early apostles, miracles surrounded the, around the second coming of Christ. So we saw the nature of evil, rebellious, autonomous thinking, man independent of God, choices, radical effects on man and nature. Just completed that. What about justice? I think we have the beginnings of justice. There's a lot of talk about justice today. Justice is perverted in the thinking of modern Americans and modern man in general. Where does justice begin? Number one, you can probably give it to me. Where does everything begin? All right. Begins with the holiness of God. Justice is an expression of the holiness of God. It doesn't come from man. So our culture misses the boat from the very beginning, always. Secondly, justice always preceded by grace. Because what justice calls for is the death of Adam and Eve. The death of mankind. But what we have in Genesis 3 is grace. Grace always precedes justice. Grace is always made available. It's not legalism. Justice comes and stems and preceded by grace. Thirdly, based on God's righteousness, and we have God's evaluation in Genesis 3. He's executing justice. We have the first executing of justice in Genesis 3. And it's based on God's righteousness, not culture. Culture does not develop justice. Fourthly, it involves retribution. It involves punishment. And we have that in Genesis 3. And it's not unfair. It's just. That's the definition of it. Fifthly, at the heart of justice is a separating from evil. That's the essence of justice. God separating that that he loves from that that destroys. That's justice. All of the judgments of God are God separating out that that he loves from that that he hates and that that destroys. The flood that we'll look at, God separating out eight people from a corrupt world, saving eight. Genesis 3, God is going to separate out two his first two individuals, and we're going to see the beginnings of salvation there as well. What does it mean, not eternal? Because eternal will be separated. Evil is not eternal. Oh, okay. All right. It's confined in eternity. It's the idea of unbounded, unbounded evil. Is that eternal? Yeah, but it's, we're separated from it. Sixth, justice is resolved by God himself. So justice cannot be independent of God. It's got to be in relationship to God. So all the justice that is spoken of in our culture... Our culture says, we want justice, we don't want the poor to be poor, so let's take away the rich and the wealthy, wealthiness from wealthy, give it to the poor. That's not justice. It's unjust to the rich. (laughs) And it's not just for the poor. Some of the poor are poor because of their own choices. So it has to be resolved by God himself. He's the only wise one to be able to institute justice. So that's just, that's our foundation for justice. Let's look real quickly at the provision, chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. 
and in that will have some implications as well. Mark 20. Genesis 3.20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife clothed. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and he might live forever. Therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden. Cultivate the ground, for she had forsaken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he started, he stationed the cherubim and flaming sword, which turned to every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay. Verse 20, first of all. Notice the man, this is the first response of the man after the condemnation. It doesn't tell us between verses 19 and 20 what happened as a result of God bringing condemnation and conviction. But what does verse 20 imply to us? It doesn't tell us, but I think is implied here. Somehow they came to some sort of a... Okay, something happened, something happened in man, it appears here. Okay. What is recognized by man? Man, man called his wife's name what? Eve, because of what? Mother of all living. living. What does that anticipate? God said, in the day that you eat of the tree of life, you shall die dead. How can she bring life if she's going to die dead? It implies... It doesn't tell us, but it implies repentance. implies salvation. He anticipates that there's going to be onward living and that there's going to be life that is produced. So he names, and we have the naming motif again, which shows that he, as Connie is indicating, a beginning back to the initial role of headship, where the man is now taking initiative. Remember, naming has the the characteristic of being able to identify characteristics in nature and that that is being named, but it also has the idea of uh, rulership or sovereignty or headship in this case. So he names the woman and he names her appropriately. He names her in anticipation. The essence of who she will be is a life giver. She's going to produce the next generation. She is going to give life. The essence of what God created her to be. To bear children. In other words, to be fruitful and multiply. She's going to fulfill her role. So, again, a reestablishing. There seems to be a restoration to some extent here in verse 20. And then verse 21 adds to that, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where did these garments come from? Murder. <laughs> Death. The word literally are skins. Garments of skin. What does that entail? As you say, death, but what else? Sacrifice. Very good, a first sacrifice. There is no yep, remission of sin. God produces the first sacrifice, and if you've ever been around a farm or you've seen what happens to animals when they are basically killed, lots of blood. This is probably a shock They'd never seen blood. They'd never seen the this, this spurting of blood and the crying of the animal and the death and the pouring of blood. A mess. They were witnesses to all of this. This left an impression, I think, upon them that this animal, what? Died in their place. Gave up something so that they would have something. So that they would have life. So we have the beginning of the idea of a substitutionary death, which ultimately would end in the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Doesn't atonement mean covering? Covering, yes. And I think this is a little bit picture of that. Yes, their sin was covered, and that's what's implied in this passage. And their skin was, I mean, you know, it's just that whole picture of covering. Covering, right, Exactly. So we have the beginnings or the foundation to soteriology. What area of theology is that? Soteriology is a study of what? 
salvation. So you could put the foundation for salvation or soteriology. So let me give you a foundation to all of this area. The rest of Scripture will develop all of these foundations, but we have virtually everything that we need for salvation in this Genesis 3 passage. We have always the initiative God. It's always God who takes the initiative. Always. The doctrine of election. We'll develop that further later. Secondly, God decreed. In other words, this is part of God's plan that there would be a Messiah or that there would be a Savior. Where is that? In Genesis 3. 3.15, the Protevangelium. God decreed it. Thirdly, we have the depravity of man. In other words, man is desperately in need. There's nothing that man can do. He's helpless. Important element in soteriology. We have that right here. God said you shall surely die. He's on the verge of death if God does not do something on his behalf. And in verse 21, we have God doing something. And... That salvation is received by grace, by faith. Now, it's not stated, but it's implied in the naming of Eve. It's implied in that he places his faith in what God's promised in verse 15. I have a question that says here that God made garments of skin for Adam. Yes. And you said that was for Sunday seen blood. So God butchered the cattle? That's what it tells us. And they seen the blood. The lamb, it was probably, yeah. Whatever the skins are wearing. Yep. An animal had to die. It doesn't tell us ex- explicitly, but I would say that it was probably a lamb. So after that time, then, man did it himself. Well, God called upon him, yeah. So, number four, it's always on the basis of grace. There's nothing that man can do, and man didn't do anything. He simply responded in faith, naming Eve. So, number one, we have the initiative of God. Number two, God decrees it. Number three, depravity of man. Number four, it's always on the basis of faith given by grace, received by grace. Requires payment, very important. Sacrifice to produce the skins. And we have the doctrine of the imputation of righteousness, which Paul will give details in the book of Romans. Imputation, what's the idea here? That's an accounting word. What does imputation mean? To give credit or to to credit somebody with something. So we are credited with righteousness. It's put to our account, you might say. Our spiritual account. Righteousness is put to our account. And that's pictured by the clothes or the skins. Fig leaves are totally inadequate. The fig leaves are man's attempt to cover his sin. Number seven, we have God's protection, which is part of soteriology, and that's pictured in the expulsion from the garden. Number eight, soteriology includes soteriology includes the creation, and that's implied there's going to be an ultimate restoration of the entire creation as well. We don't see it clearly in Genesis 3, but you can add that to your foundation. And certainly the book of Revelation makes it clear. Isaiah 65, in fact, several chapters before 65 as well. So, that's the fall. We've looked at the nature of evil in terms of an implication. We've looked at the second implication, the radical effects of the fall on man and nature. Thirdly, we've seen the nature of justice rather quickly because we have that at the heart of the passage. God dealing justly, a holy God dealing with sin through justice. Number four, we have God resolving the issue of sin. He is the one that resolves it. He's the one that is the author of salvation. And we can add to our foundation to anthropology. We're not only created by God, not evolved, We're distinct from nature, not continuous with it. We're in the image of God. We're not just material. Fourthly, we have a high purpose. We're not created purposeless. Fifthly, we're fallen. Not good, as secular humanism says. Created in the image of God, but that's damaged, and that can be restored where we can do good things. But our essential nature is fallen. 
and were responsible for suffering, number six, and our own suffering. Ultimately, we are responsible for suffering in the world. We're not victims. Number seven, we're unable to reach God, cannot reach God by works. All unbelievers think that you can reach God by works. All religions teach that good works bring you to God. Genesis 3 implies that you cannot. So, cannot reach God. So there's your foundation for anthropology. Okay, let's wrap it up. We have some contrasts. The unbelieving worldview, there's a continuity of being. Secondly, it's based on evolution, at least secular humanism. Number three, institutions are arbitrary, and therefore they can be changed at any time. And they're in the process of being changed today in our culture. Fourthly, every system, every worldview, evil is eternal. Evil is normal. It's just the way things are. In contrast, the biblical worldview, we have a creator-creation distinction. No evolution. We have creation ex nihilo, or God creating out of nothing. And institutions are divine institutions that uh, cannot be changed without severe consequences. And then today we talked about evil being bounded and that we live in an abnormal universe that is in the process of God restoring. And right now the restoration is predominantly spiritual, not physical, not material. So that's our exposition of Genesis chapter 3 along with the implications of the fall of mankind. What we want to do next is do a little bit of an apologetic for the problem of evil. Just ask a question. Yep. There's some letters off to the side here. Those are the implications under the implication thing. In conclusion, we can praise our Lord that he will restore the creation to better than the original. So what we have now is not all that there is. So that's what we can always praise God for.